Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 95 of Hack to Start. This episode features Shane Mack, the co-founder and CEO of Assist, bringing the best services to your favorite messaging apps. Tyler and I wanted to invite Shane onto the show to share his story as an entrepreneur and product guy. Shane's been building products and startups for several years, from Gist, which was acquired by BlackBerry, to Zarly, and now Assist. Shane has developed several processes around everything from raising funding to applying advice. Shane joins us to share his story, how he got into tech and startups, how he approaches building products, advice on raising funding, what he's building as Assist, his thoughts on messaging space, and much more. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Shane. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited uh, to have you on and, and share all the amazing things that you're doing uh, at Assist these days. But before we dive into that, let's let's learn a little bit more about you. Can you tell us like where you're from, what you studied, and how your passion for entrepreneurship really began to develop? Yeah, my uh, passion for it, honestly, I didn't ever plan on being an entrepreneur. I didn't even know what it was. I grew up in the middle of Illinois, small town, went to Western Illinois University, studied finance and economics, thought I'd go be on Wall Street. And that was going to be that, you know, I grew up with the family. My dad was pretty rigid on, you know, get a job, work your you know, way to the top and entrepreneurship was never even really a thing. So I didn't really ever suspect it to happen. And then my senior year of high school, I actually got cut from the baseball team. And I uh, was in the lunch line one day and the choir teacher asked me if I wanted to join choir. And I kind of laughed at her as being a closed minded jock that I was. I was like, yeah, right. No way. And then she kept asking me for some reason to join choir and music literally became the reason why I ever got into entrepreneurship. And so I was in college. I played a lot of music shows. I started playing a lot of weddings. I started doing a half live, half DJ show. And then I realized how much money people paid for their weddings. And I was kind of this in between a live band and in between a DJ. I had this little, I'll play guitar, keyboard, backing tracks, sing through your whole wedding. And then I'll also DJ. And so I had this like price point right in the middle where everyone that wanted a band but couldn't afford it ended up paying me. That led me to start building my own websites and start building my own little widgets for like, you know, online scheduling and calendaring and all that stuff. And that's literally how I got into building websites, which ultimately led me into the tech industry and to start my own company. But I never planned on it. It was just this random thing playing music in college. And then, you know, honestly, I was probably more just my ego trying to prove my dad wrong when he kept telling me music wasn't a career. So I just started playing weddings every freaking weekend until I made more money in one year than I did at my like bullshit business job after my year after college. So you then began working on marketing and product at Gist in 2010. Gist was then acquired by BlackBerry. So what was the product and what was some of the lessons learned? And what was the acquisition process like for you? Yeah, so you know, Gist started, it was 2008, middle of the year. So I moved to Seattle and I got really lucky to meet the founder and CEO, T.A. McCann, who ended up being a pretty big deal in Seattle. We were seed funded by Paul Allen from Microsoft. 
Brad Feld led our A round from Foundry, so about a three and a half million dollar A round. And you know, just we grew from like three to like thirteen people. We were tiny, so you know, everyone's kind of a founder at a company like that. We built the company into about two hundred million profiles, and it was a smart address book. So at the time in two thousand eight, it was really this first ever social CRM, which today is kind of like every CRM, customer relationship management. So Salesforce, um, there's other companies, Contactually. Uh, nimble, et cetera. But TA and I are both just obsessed with as social networks become a thing, I don't care about Franco on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook or calendar or SMS or email or whatever. I just care about Franco. And so we were like, how do we aggregate all social data and public data about every person on the planet and build the best profile and address book that can let me know when I need to get back in touch with someone, news about them, reasons to follow up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we built that for about two and a half years, and then we sold it for a little over $45 million to BlackBerry in 2010. So yeah, it was like literally two years, 200 million profiles, and building that was one of the, that was my first ever entrepreneurial startup experience. And so getting to work alongside a guy like TA, he's just an amazing human. He's been in the game for 20 years. He really kind of took me under his wing and you know, he runs a company like an athlete. He won the America's Cup in 1992 and won lost in 95. So he kind of always had this philosophy that running a company is like running a sailboat. And there's one person that literally has the strongest right arm. And all they do is crank the winch. One person literally just can pull the sail to the top faster than anybody else. And so he really ran it in a lean and efficient way. And he taught me that the only thing you can control is persistence and progress. Everything else, if we have the wrong idea, the wrong stuff, it doesn't matter. But we can control those. And so only focus on what you can control and then never, ever like slip from executing from that. That's pretty crazy growth. How did you guys uh, grow so quickly? Uh, it was a lot of the early kind of like Plaxo type days. So email was definitely the growth, right? It was back in the days before email got completely exploited where you could get people to share the, it was the first contact book type sharing, spreading diseases now that they've become. But back in then it was, you know, just the time when before it kind of all fell and mobile kind of came around. So it was all done through email contact book type growth mostly. So you've been working on something called Hello There. What was the startup and what really motivated you to start it? Yeah. So Hello There was always a side project. I ended up selling it uh, just because someone, they really wanted it. Now I didn't really spend my time doing it. I did it before Gist actually, which was funny. I, that's actually one of the products I just had. I built it as a way for all my friends who kept bitching that they couldn't find jobs. I was like so pissed when they would tell me, yeah, I just sent a resume and I never hear back. Or like, they're just lazy. And I was just like, I'm going to build a tool that focuses on the psychology of why people listen. People listen when you talk about them and they listen if you took the time to make a little more effort and not do what everyone else is doing. And so at the time, all I saw was every time somebody on the internet made a page like hiremegoogle.com or hiremegist.com or whatever, that link would get spread around our company so fast because you're talking about the company. So it's like if you talk about Gist and you make the page personal to the head of marketing at Gist, the head of marketing is going to read the page and be like, this guy made me an entire website. That's pretty awesome. So hello there was just a way for anyone who doesn't know how to build a website to make shane.sayhellothere.to slash heyfranco. And it would be a personalized page all about them, not about you. 
So it was all about the company and the person you were sending it to. And then we built analytics that allowed you to see like when they opened it, if they passed it around, et cetera. And it worked every time. Anyone who used the product always got a callback. And so it, it was more just built out of like, I wanted to help my little friend group stand apart. And it ended up being one of my favorite products I ever created and grew it to tens of thousands of users. And I, I loved it, but it's since been killed because once you sell it, you realize that, you know, your babies die. So. so from there, you led product with Zarly. What was your role like and what were some of the lessons learned while working there? So Zarly was really because I knew a guy named Eric from Seattle. And Eric, when we had worked on Gist, he built a product that we ended up buying off him for like 10 grand at the end of a weekend called Learn That Name. And it was a game to learn your network. So he, I had this list in theory in life that just make a list of all the people you want to work with that you've ever met. Because when the timing's right, you want to go back to that list and then you know try to see who else is at the right time and also have, can take the right risk and you can go build a company with. And so... Eric had called me and had been like, hey, do you want to come join Zarly? And there was only three of them at the time. And he's like, you know, we did it last weekend. We think it's going to be a big idea. We think it's a reverse marketplace from what Craigslist is doing. Craigslist sucks. And I was kind of in a place where I was just more looking on who I was going to join, not what I was going to do. And so Eric was on the list, this guy named Ian, who's an amazing engineer, who was also on my list. And I never met Bo, who ended up being the CEO of Zarly and is still the CEO of Zarly. And Bo is literally one of the most amazing humans on the planet. So I met him and then they were like, we got offered half a million bucks from Ashton Kutcher and all these other big fancy names and shit. And they were like, are we going to do this? And so we sat around a table and they're like, yeah, but we need somebody to move to San Francisco. And so myself and Ian were the only two that were single. So we moved here and then started the company in 2011. For three years, we were doing, you could ask for anything with a price and then we would find it for you. Uh, and then we end up shuttering that model, turning it into local services that you could book online and has since turned it around. But it was an insane ride. Like we were the most overhyped company. I think we've raised 36 million bucks through two big rounds, like led by Kleiner, which is one of the biggest VCs in the Valley. It was so much hype and we've like, we fucked up so much stuff and we went from zero to a ton of money to 45 people. And then we had to lay off like 20 and then start over and then raise more money. And so Zarly actually today is slow upwards growth. Every month's better than the last, but it never, you know, it's never been a hockey stick. And it was a big lesson of growing the team, the culture, too much money too fast before our product was right. So it was actually very painful. We didn't have a good culture at the beginning and it was a pretty hellacious ride there for about four years. Yeah, it sounds like a crazy roller coaster. Yeah, it was just it was just too much hype. And we'd all done companies before, and so it was weird how we all kind of got caught up in the hype. And then we all believed in our own bullshit. And then with too many people and too many voices before the product was right, you can't cipher through why there's so many emotions and people are mad and people aren't happy and people have ideas, but you're not doing them, so then they're mad. And without the conviction and the progress before you have all the team, it really was hard to kind of build a culture, right? We just went too fast. And so we paid for it too. It was a great learning, but it was a pain in the ass. That's a pretty crazy story. So what's Ask? And can you tell us a bit more about this company and what you are working on there? Uh, so Ask, Ask I've been doing actually for 10 years. The first thing I ever created on the internet. Uh, I've just always been fascinated by curiosity as the core of innovation. So there's a study done a long time ago, actually, by a neuroscientist named Bo Lotto. And what he says is that if you break down innovation and the idea that every company in the world wants to be the most innovative company, and if you break down innovation to what it really is, it's just creativity that's applied. Everyone knows what application means. So what is creativity? And if you break down creativity, 
creativity is really just your perceptions and really changing your perceptions. But the only way to change your perceptions in general, like as a scientific way, is to make sure that you have no intrinsic motivation and no extrinsic judgment. So people try to say like, let's go be creative. And they go in a boardroom where like they end up firing someone last week. And whenever you're in an environment that has external judgment or intrinsic motivation, like an office or where you spend your day working or what people you know, think you do there, it's really hard to be creative. And so there's a study done that the state of play and the environment you're in is the most important thing to being innovative because the only way to be the most innovative is to question your perceptions, but you have to do it in the right state of play, which is like not in the office, not in the boardroom, not in the expectation that I should be working, but more like in the one-off things where you've never been to a piece of a part of town or you do something that's you've never done before with the team and you just kind of like come up with ideas on the fly and you don't really feel like you're working. And so I've been kind of obsessed with that notion that most great ideas and things happen in this different state on how you question your perceptions. And so then the reality is the core of all innovation is just curiosity done in the right environment or way. And I think like curiosity on the extreme is really the core of empathy and not having an ego. And I think I kind of grew up with an ego thinking I was great at sports. And so I became with, obsessed like 10 years ago with just asking one hard question to anyone in the world that they don't always get asked. And I started posting those interviews online. And then it became kind of a thing where I've gotten to interview a lot of great people around the world. And it's for me, it's like every interview is the most awesome, humbling thing because it's never what I grew up knowing and thinking that I knew it all. And then I always get off an interview and I'm like, shit, I don't know anything. Or like what I believed as a truth is no longer what I believe is the truth. And so the more you ask and the more you know, the more you realize how ignorant and you are about most things in the world. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's always refreshing to just keep being more curious. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. Do you remember some of the questions you would ask uh, per, per chance? I think I asked the head of the Navy how it felt to kill someone. Okay, um, so like way like... Yeah, very, very deep. I asked the founder, who's now my co-founder, the founder of Geek Squad, what it's like to give your first kid up for adoption. And a lot of like personal questions, it plays into a lot of beliefs that people have professionally. And I was just really tired of bullshit fucking business interviews, to be honest. I mean, the irony of this, I'm not saying I don't like this interview, but it was like, it was always the same shit of like, ask a marketer how to do marketing, ask a CEO how to be a CEO, ask a whatever. And so I just really wanted to go personal and learn more about like what really made people do what they're doing because most of work is an outcome of like personal beliefs. And so I was just more curious on the personal side and I wanted to just ask more personal questions. And I found the more personal I got, especially one-on-one, the more that connection mattered down the road. And so for me, it was a way to meet people that I never thought I'd have the opportunity to meet and kind of just became a core theme and thesis in my entire life. And curiosity is the entire core of our whole company culture now because it's really the opposite of ego and it's celebrating an internal culture of what we don't know, not what we do. And that's a very hard thing for people to grasp onto when you're hired to do a job that you're supposed to know everything about. Yeah, for sure. I'll have to check some of those out. They sound, sound really, really cool. So on the subject of you know how to, how to be a CEO, you're currently the CEO of Assist. Um, for those who might not be familiar with it yet, can you tell us you know what it is and what really motivated you to start that company? Yeah, so Assist just basically... Instead of having to download an entire app 
to go do things, like make a reservation, book a hotel, book a ride, book a flight, whatever. We bring all the best services to messaging apps. So inside of Facebook Messenger, SMS, Slack, Telegram, WhatsApp, etc., you can book a reservation, book a hotel, book a ride, book a haircut, whatever you want. So I really have been obsessed with business messaging. It's kind of what Zarly was as well at the beginning. But I've, I've been talking to the founder of Geek Squad, Robert Stevens, for the past like five years about when does businesses get into messaging? When do we kill the phone? No one wants to call. The consumers are already there, but businesses aren't. How do we turn every single service into a chat-like conversation where you can do it with text and you can do it simply without having to download an entire app, design all this UI, and businesses are not going to be able to afford building apps. Like Apps had this promise, but they never became easy enough for mass distribution like the web did. And so we were, you know, about a year and a half ago, kind of looking at what we want to do in the space. And I was looking at, you know, Facebook was getting ready to bet on Messenger and WhatsApp was huge. And if we looked at messaging as the browser, we've never seen a browser with as many people staring at it every single day. And so I was like, I need to be in this space no matter what. And that's kind of how I really thought about what space I wanted to play in. But I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I'll be honest, Assist... I mean, we can talk more about like me being the CEO or, or you know how I think about it. But the, my original idea was an app that had an assistant on the background that you could text, which is like a ton of people are doing this now. And we built an app. It was beautiful. We had these cards and we integrated like OpenTable and Lyft and Uber and all these services, Hotel Tonight. And you could just click inside of the chat on these cards and you'd book a hotel. And then a person on the other end was recommending things to you. So you were talking to someone via chat. And you could say, like, you know, where's the best place to eat tonight? And then make a reservation. You could get travel recommendations, et cetera. And that's where we started a year ago. And then my co-founder, Robert, when he really went all in, he was kind of more like he's an investor. He invested in our A round, $100,000. And he also uh, was like my strongest mentor since I've been in San Francisco. And then when he was like, I need to be in the messaging space too. I want to play. And I, can, I really got him to join full time and become my co-founder. He's like, listen this human-based shit is not the future. Like Everyone's already doing it as well. And if we're going to go compete with this, we need tons of cash and Facebook's playing in it. Like, what, like what, what is the win there? So we made a decision last July to kill the human side, go all bots and automation and AI, kill our own app, and just build across every messaging platform. So we're on every platform now with over 35 services all via bots. And bots are just an automated way to chat with a service without having a human. Um, but it was a really big bet. And I'll say like for me, I wasn't there. So I had to literally step back, be like, this isn't my idea. I believe in Robert and his conviction in the space and his ability to see the future enough that zero of where we're at today is what I thought of a year ago. And it, none of it was my idea. And the only way we got here was by me getting out of the way. Yeah, it's pretty huge. And so what's it like not actually having an app or I guess destroying your app and then just being a part of all these different platforms? Right now, it's completely insane, mostly because all of these platforms are changing so fast. Like Facebook Messenger is changing completely differently on how they're thinking about businesses on Messenger. Telegram has custom keyboards that allow you to do payments and location. Kick has a way to integrate your URLs and payment with a like sliding keyboard, almost like the Apple suggested things. Slack unfurls URLs. SMS only allows images and links. And so doing commerce across all these is all different. It's literally like the browser wars of 1998, but worse. And so 
as I say that, I think that's the opportunity. Every business is going to want to be on Messenger. I think every business in the world will have a bot interface that brings them to Messenger. And if 80 to 90% of people's time is spent within five apps, which are all Messenger apps, every business is going to want to play there. And you're going to see every business in the world. I think there's a space emerging between web and apps that is much bigger. And it'll actually be the biggest space in the world in the next five years. Pretty cool and very exciting. So how have you guys managed to work with some of these companies like Uber and StubHub or Postmates through Assist and, and across all these different platforms that, unlike you know Facebook Messenger, for example, don't have that Uber button? So it's, it's actually not that hard because our pitch is simple, right? We want to send you more traffic. Can we send you more orders? Yes or no? Most companies are like, sure, we don't care. And the way we do it is we actually plug into their mobile APIs. So every company that's built a mobile app has built APIs for their mobile app. And so we just take those and then we have the engine to turn it all into a conversation and turn it and integrate all those APIs and integrate payments and all the stuff to do that. And so some, most of the APIs are open, like Uber's API is open. Any developer can build it. We just integrate it in a chat version. And then same with Resi for reservations or, you know, we launched hotels today. You can actually, we pick the top three hotels in any city in the world and you can book it via chat and all of the interface is done via a conversation. And then the platforms, you know, they want to bring businesses to them. So Facebook really wants businesses on Messenger. Same with uh, SMS and WhatsApp and Slack. And so they're pretty open. So right now, you know, if we're uh, playing within all the rules and I think it's going to just keep opening up more and more and more. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, Assist actually raised $5.5 million. So what was that process like? And do you have any sort of advice or tips to share with other entrepreneurs looking to raise some money? It was over two rounds. So I would say for seed round, I mean, really, I raised, I raised about one and a half million a um, year and a half ago, no, two years ago. And then I raised another four million last May. And so I would say for the first initial round, it was only because of being in tech for the last seven, eight years. And without building my network over seven or eight years, never would have done that funding round. And that really came from gist and knowing that like, spend all my time getting value for the next eight to 10 years and being helpful to investors and people and product people and feedback on products and help out with anything I can all day, every day. And if I ever didn't have a product and an ask, then I'll be ready for it. And that's how that happened. And then I have like very tactical beliefs in, in fundraising if, you, if that's what you're more interested in. Yeah, sure. I mean, I believe fundraising is about two things to really do it right. One is you should never ask and the second one is you should always raise more. And what I mean by that is everyone thinks that you should raise like 250K or 300K. But the thing is investors want to feel like you're going to be here for a long time. So actually the safest way, the way to make them the safest so that they know you have three to four shots with this funding round to get it right. Because the truth is we don't actually have it figured out yet. So when you raise more than less, it's better. I don't know if that makes sense, but... You know, in investors' eyes, when you raise 200K, you're going to have to raise again in six months. It takes six months to raise. The minute you close the round, you're back you're on the done. circuit. Yeah. You're going to go back to fundraising, right? So you're sitting there and you're like, you raise 200K. In six months, you're going to be out of money. It takes six months. And then you're going to start fundraising the day you close your round. So an investor's like, you're not going to do anything. It's a raise. For sure. And so that's really why the psychology of raising more than less works. The other piece of it is, I call it keep you in the loop. So every single person that I talk to, is going around saying like they get the advice of like, just ask everyone if they'll invest. For me, I think it's a terrible idea because investment in seed rounds happens because a lot of other people that they trust are also investing or interested. 
And so a better strategy I've found is instead of going out and asking for money, go out and take people on the ride with you, get them excited, shoot yourself in the head first before any questions can be asked. So if you're out there raising and you don't have any growth, the first thing to talk about is how you don't have any growth and why and why you're not actually focused on it. So just take out yourself so that you, they can't shoot you later. So I always use that strategy to like make sure that I take out myself first. I literally call it shoot yourself in the head so that no one else can shoot you later. If you don't want to talk about growth later and you're afraid of the question, talk about it first and be like, here's why we're not doing it. And then I never ask for money. I literally say, can I keep you in the loop? Everyone says yes. It's your job over the next three months to every week, send an email update and the list of people that are interested and you're keeping in the loop gets longer. And until finally someone bites and they're like, listen, listen, fuck me in the loop. I want to lead this round. If they're a seed fund, that's the best because it can write the 250 to 500K checks. And that's when you really then go back and say, hey, 45 people that are now in this email and I'm keeping you in the loop. Looks like we have somebody that wants to put in some money. Looks like we're going to price the round. We're going to do this. And then you can really kind of wrangle close fast and get everyone excited at once. But I see too many people like just one-off ask everywhere. And it's just a deflating long road of like, there's no real reason for the investor to say yes, because you're going to call them tomorrow. If they can wait till tomorrow, then it's a safer investment for them. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some great, uh, some great tips. So you also do a lot of mentoring and, and provide advice and invest in some other startups, including like Tap Talk. Um, so what are some of the most common mistakes that you see other entrepreneurs kind of making? Uh, and what's some of the most common advice that you share? Uh, I'd say my main advice to most people when they ask me is to figure out how to ignore most advice. I feel like advice is cheap. There's too much advice. And it's actually really hard to not listen to like someone you consider a mentor when they have no context of your problem, they're not doing it day to day and they have like advice on the idea or the market. So when it's the idea in the market, I feel like people just give advice unsolicited and it's not helpful. And so I actually try to figure out how to not do that. The only thing I like to give advice on is things that I've done that I feel like are a checklist that can be repeated. So fundraising is one. I have a very clear like fundraising doc. A lot of the stuff I just said, here's how I think about the process. If you do it this way, this is what works for me. It's not what works for everyone, but it's what works for me. If you want to talk about hiring and how I think about onboarding an employee, and I write a lot publicly about this stuff on my blog, like how we onboard people, how do you make it feel special? How do you make sure that the three weeks before they join is actually a critical window of making them feel, you know, they're going to quit their job, they make their spouse feel great. That's a checklist. If you think about how we do rollouts of new products and PR, that's a checklist. So I think about advice as things I can control and do and have a history doing, not as, oh my God, I love this idea. I write about a lot publicly like around consumer products, but more around like the psychology of why I think it's working, not where I think it should go. So I, I don't know. I, I, I try to you know be careful of giving advice because I know that a lot of times, even in my life, Somebody who's a mentor gives me advice and it sends me off on a rampage, changing my direction. And then I like email the whole company and I'm like, oh, dude, this guy who I think is God ended up telling me this and we should switch. And then everyone gets just fucking stirred up. And, it, it, you know, it's just like a down, downward spiral sometimes. So I try to steer clear of that. But that's just my kind of personal view. No, that's an interesting approach. And, you know, definitely coming together and figuring out your processes and just documenting them and using them over and over again is a great approach. So what are some of the most recent apps that you've downloaded or used lately? I don't believe in apps anymore. Apps are dead. I'm totally <laughs> kidding. Um, 
But I actually just I got a new phone, and so whenever I get a new phone, I don't re-download everything. And uh, it's always interesting to see like what you re-download again. I mean, I'm I'm like a I'm like a productivity geek. I don't I don't play a lot of games. I don't do a lot of like fun shit on my phone. I like very much my phone is a device to work and do things. And so I'm more of like the the apps that improve things. Like Inbox by Google is my favorite app by far. I think what they're doing with email is on a whole other level of cool shit. Like the littlest things. Like they have auto replies now. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I haven't tried that yet. They have auto replies. So you don't even have to type anymore because it knows exactly what you want to respond with. So it's like synced with your calendar. It knows if I'm traveling. And if someone says, hey, like you guys, you're like, hey, can you get on this count thing tomorrow at 5.30? That would be great. It's, it says, yeah, sure, tomorrow at 5.30 works for me. Because it knows my calendar has an opening at 5.30 because it's synced to my calendar. It writes the complete response and it read your whole email to know exactly how I would respond in a short, succinct way. It's mind-blowing. Like That's the kind of shit that I like. That's amazing. I'm a huge fan of... Uh, what are your thoughts on Google Now? Love Google Now. I actually was with the founder of Google Now all day. <laughs> He's, amazing, uh, yeah. Yeah, the guy Barris is an amazing guy. He loves the messaging space and really influential and kind of as we think about if messaging does replace search, what does it look like? You know, it's interesting. So is there any recommendations on great content that you've come across lately, like either book, video or blog post? I always like to look backwards and like how people thought about businesses that had a long-term feel. So, I mean, I've kind of, you know, I, I joined... Just when it was first starting, and we had a pretty successful exit two year and a half years later. I joined Zarly, first person to join, and then I left after four and a half years once my stock was vested because I wanted to try my hand at being a CEO. And I actually went to Bo and said, Hey, I want to play in this messaging space. I love you, and we fought this Zarly war, but I only want to leave if you'll be my first investor because I don't want to leave you. And he was my first investor and assist. And so this time around, I've really been focused on what are the best long-term cultures? How do you do things over years, not days? And how do you build a company that really has a lasting kind of feel? And so that's why I recruited the founder of Geek Squad to be my co-founder because he built a company over 18 years that turned into a $4 billion company from a bike in Minnesota and a brand that everyone loves. And so the book and the post that I read that I'm just thinking of right now is this one that Ohm did an interview with this guy. I can send you the link afterwards. The, the, the post is called Slow Down. And he's an Italian billionaire who makes sweaters. And his belief on radical transparency, not using technology all the time and being a slave to your technology, on why speed kills things, and how if you're going to do something for the long haul, you have to slow down and be more methodical and also have a place where people aren't overworked has been very inspirational to me. I mean, I think I lived on the floor at Zarly. I worked 18 hours a day. I didn't sleep for three years. And then when you start over after three years, you're kind of like, if I wouldn't have rushed so fast, maybe I would have slowed down and got it right. And so we have a very, very different culture here. And uh, we want it to have a long-term feel. And so this, this post it's on pi.co, pi.co, and then Brunello Susanelli. It's really long. It's one of my favorite interviews I've ever read of how he be- thinks about building a lasting brand and company. It's pretty awesome. I'll have to check it out. I haven't. Uh, I was searching for it there as, as you were as you were talking about it. So uh, we'll definitely have to check it out. Do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you like to live by, and you think others should know about? I believe this whole game is just a collection of people, and I would say. The one thing I've done my entire life that I made a stance on 10 years ago was I, there's no amount of money that I won't spend to invest in my network and the people that I'm going to be around. 
And so that's all I think about. Like in person always matters most. And if you want to build a long-term relationship, that's all that matters. So I will hop on a plane. I will invest in a party. I will take events. I will do anything if I knew it's going to help me build a relationship with someone. And so I've actually, I sold my car, moved down here, pretty much sold everything I owned. And for the last 10 years, I've spent every single dollar I own on investing and building my network. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Everything in life is just about the people you get to work with and people are the only thing that make things happen. Then I think it's been the most valuable thing that I've ever done. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's pretty awesome. Shane, thanks so much for being on the show, man. It was really amazing to have the chance to speak with you. Hey, thank you, guys. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.